Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be looking, as the Scripture reading indicated this morning, at verses 5 through 15. Now, we began this passage of Scripture in chapter 6 with a topic statement that the Lord made about what follows. And what He shares with us is this general principle, beware, verse 1 of chapter 6, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus was talking about the religious elite of His day, those who love to be seen by people. Everything that they did was to draw attention to themselves and to somehow have the impression given to people that they are the spiritual ones. There's a temptation that all of us run into when it comes to that. And Jesus talks about some of the disciplines of His day that people thought were most spiritual. Last week, we saw the discipline of giving of alms, and giving of alms is a good thing. But when we take it and use it as a way of drawing attention to ourselves and as a way of pointing people to us rather than to God, not a good thing. Now he turns his attention to the issue of prayer. And what we're going to see as we look through this text this morning is how we should pray. You know, it's not only what we do, but why we do it. A lot of times people have an external approach to how they follow God. And everything is judged by appearances. What the Word of God points out to us is this. God is every bit as much concerned, even more, as to why we do something as He is to what we do. And our motivation is key in our following God. So that's what we want to see as we look at this passage of Scripture together. Now, Jesus begins this part of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 5 by talking about our purpose in prayer. And what he brings out is our purpose in prayer really matters. Look at verses 5 and 6. What we want to avoid is publicizing our, and I'm going to use air quotes here, spirituality in in a wrong way. What we do shouldn't be for the the pure purpose of having people look at us and say, wow, they're spiritual. And I think this can be expanded beyond just prayer, but the subject matter that the Lord brings up first in this passage is prayer. And we want to be careful as followers of God not to take prayer and turn it into something that is about us rather than about God. So let's look carefully at this passage of Scripture and look at what it says. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. When Jesus addresses the issue of public performance, prayer shouldn't be a public performance, right? It shouldn't be something that we do so that people will say, wow, they pray the most flowery prayers. I wish I could pray like that. It shouldn't be something that we do where we go to the biggest intersection in town and spread out our arms and say, oh, Father, and pray so that everybody will direct their attention to us. That isn't about God. That kind of prayer is about us. 
And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of taking good things, good things that should be directed toward God, and misdirecting them toward ourselves. That's what Jesus is calling to task in this passage of Scripture. You know, very early in my ministry, uh, I had just graduated from seminary, and I had the lofty position of living in my parents' basement with my wife and our firstborn son and one on the way. And so it was a necessary thing to live in their basement until I found a place of ministry. So we're looking, and we heard about a small church out in the country in West Virginia, and we considered that as a place of ministry. Perhaps God was opening a door for us to serve. And they asked me to come and speak in a midweek service, and I did. And then after I shared the message, the leader of the service, who was also probably the most wealthy person in the church, employed over half of the church, said, now it's time to pray. And so the women remained seated, and all of the men came to the front of the church and kneeled along the steps. And then it started. Every one of them were praying as loud as they could, and what it turned out to be was a contest as to who could pray the loudest and the longest. And I'll give you one guess who always won. The guy that owned the church. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you start to laugh and you know that it's inappropriate? <laughs> and so, you're holding it back. Paula and I were seated right next to each other. I, I didn't go up to join the pageant. And I'm sitting there saying, don't laugh, don't laugh. And then I feel the pew shake. And it's Paula. And I lost it, you know. I fortunately didn't go. But I started laughing. Why? Because it was laughable. It was evident that their prayer was not about God, their prayer was about themselves, and frankly, it was ridiculous. It was a parody of what prayer should really be. And that has stood out for years in my mind. I couldn't wait till I got to this passage of Scripture so I could use that illustration, because it really has been a picture for me of how not to pray. So, what Jesus is saying to us is, look, when, when you pray, don't go to the street corner and hold up your arms and turn it into a pageant of prayer. You see, prayer isn't about me lifting me up. Prayer is about me connecting with God and spending time talking to Him. A lot of times I'll hear a new believer say, well, you know, I don't really want to pray publicly because I don't know how to say what I want to say. Well, guess what? Prayer is talking to God, right? You don't have to have interspersed these and thous. You don't have to have a formula where you follow the formula of somebody else. If you're praying, you're talking to God, and God wants you to direct your prayer to Him rather than the listeners anyway. So we don't need to be concerned about that. When we pray, we're praying to Almighty God. 
And God wants us to remember that. The Scripture goes on in the sixth verse to tell us more. It says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what Jesus is making as a point in this part of the passage isn't that corporate prayer or public prayer is out of bounds. Otherwise, I transgressed it this morning when I did the pastoral prayer, right? What he's saying is it's the counterpoint to what the Pharisees were doing in having a pageant of prayer so that everybody could see. What he wants us to understand is this. Look, if you are not praying privately, then don't go out and start praying publicly. If the only time you pray is when you're doing it publicly, there's a problem. And if you're looking at it and saying, hey, I want everybody to to hear what a great prayer I am, then you have a problem as well. What Jesus is saying to us is this, there should be that private quality time with God that's done in secret, but that's not the only time we pray. God wants us to be careful not to just have a public life that draws attention to ourselves. And the best way to avert that kind of thought process is to be consistent in your prayer in that alone time with God. If you're connecting with God privately, then I would say to you, you have greater odds of connecting with Him properly when you do it publicly. But if the only time we do it is privately, and excuse me, publicly and never privately, we have an issue. So what God is saying to us is this, not that the only time I should pray is when I go into a secret room and I'm hidden from others, but what he is saying is this, that is more important than the public stuff that we do for everybody to see. Don't make it about that. Something else that we find in this text, as we come to verses 7 and 8, we find that prayer should never be an effort to manipulate God. Listen, prayer is never about me redirecting the purpose and the plan of God to match up with my purpose and plan. Many of the pagans viewed prayer to their deities as just that. And so they would come up with formulas and ways of saying things that would more or less bind their deities to doing what they asked of them by employing the proper formula. If they would repeat it enough and they would repeat it in the right way, then whatever God they worshipped had to follow it. It was almost like an incantation that they were making. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. You know, when I think of this part of the passage, I think of 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember the story of Elijah? and the prophets of Baal. Read it. We won't take time to read it now, but let me summarize. Elijah, the lone prophet of God, 450 prophets of Baal. They build two altars. One altar is to be consumed by fire from Baal. The other one would be consumed by fire from Elijah's God, Jehovah, the one true God. So, from morning till noon, the prophets of Baal 
are going on and on, and they're intensifying, and they're repeating their phrases, and they're starting to whirl around, and they're starting to cut themselves to show just how serious they were. Nothing. And then it goes on into the afternoon, and I love this part of the passage because Elijah even starts to taunt them a little bit. Yeah. Hey, what's with your gods? Are they off somewhere relieving themselves? It's actually in 1 Kings chapter 18. I encourage you to read it. As a junior high boy, I loved that part of the passage. <laughs> I mean, he really lays it on thick, and they start to get more and more and more intense in their prayer. And guess what happened? Nothing. I guess you could say their God bailed on them because nothing happened. The sacrifice was just there. And then Elijah prays about two sentences. Prior to the prayer, guess what he did? He laid the sacrifice on the stones that were piled up and the wood that was laid on the altar. And then he says, you know, take water and pour it over the sacrifice. And around the altar, he had dug a trench. And so they're pouring enough water over the animals to soak them, or the animal to soak it. And the trench fills up with water. And then after two sentences of prayer, you know what happens? Everything is consumed. The water, the animal, the sacrifice, the wood, the stone. It's like a crater <laughs> after God is through with that sacrifice, with one or two sentences of prayer. That's our God. God isn't impressed by us tacking on a number of formulas, a number of words, flowery language. None of that impresses God. God wants us to talk to Him from the heart. And not in a way that we're doing it to draw attention to ourselves. Don't you imagine that those priests of Baal, as they're making those prayers and spinning around and cutting themselves and jumping up and down and carrying on, don't you imagine that in all of that they were doing it for the show? What God is saying in this text is, don't be like that. Look at what verse 8 says. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Listen, when we pray, we're not informing God. Now, God, I hope you know that. And I've actually heard Christians pray in that way. Guess what? God knows. So, here's the question. If our Father in heaven already knows what we need before we ask Him, then then. Why are we told in the Scripture to pray? Why are we told to, to ask of God? And here's the answer. The prayer isn't for God. It's for us. We recognize who we are praying to, and we recognize our dependence on Him. That's the purpose of prayer, to teach us to rest in God, rely on God, acknowledge God, Rather than coming in and saying, okay, God, this is what I want, and I'll only believe in you and worship you if you do these things, if you check the boxes, if you do the hoops that I've set up for you to jump through. Only then will I worship you. That's not what prayer is. 
Prayer is, yes, expressing to God our needs, but also, in advance, trusting God as to who He is and what He will do. That is, for His best purposes, not mine. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. Aren't you glad that God doesn't answer all of our prayers? Because I have prayed some flat-out stupid prayers that thank God He didn't answer. Prayer is really about me aligning myself with God, not getting God to align Himself with me. And we have that backwards sometimes in our approach to prayer. So, as we go through this text, we've seen the importance of having the proper motivation, that our purpose in prayer really matters. But then, as we come to the ninth verse, we shift, and we move into a pattern for prayer. Now, let me share this. We're going to go into the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to break down uh, the Lord's Prayer into basically two parts, our praise that we direct toward God, and then the petition that we give I already let you who are following on the outline know the next P well in advance. But the petition that we make toward God uh, for our needs, those are the two aspects of the Lord's Prayer that break down rather neatly as we look at it. But I want to, before we get into that, to, to think about the Lord's Prayer for a moment. I've been asked as a pastor why we don't do the Lord's Prayer publicly. And I'm not opposed to doing the Lord's Prayer if it's done with the right purpose. Look carefully at the ninth verse and notice an important word in that verse. Pray then, and the important word is like this. The Lord's Prayer isn't a prescribed prayer that we're to repeat. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern that we are to learn from, draw elements from, and then employ it in our own prayer life. I would submit to you that in some of the faith traditions that take the Lord's Prayer and repeat it to bring about penance are defeating the very purpose of what Christ is saying in this passage of Scripture following the vain repetition that we find in verses 7 and 8. I would submit to you that if I think by praying the Lord's Prayer, I can somehow achieve more stuff or better things in my life, that something supernatural will happen because I've employed the formula of this prayer. Again, that's not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. It's clearly presented in this text that the Lord's Prayer is something that we are to pray like. In other words, this is something that Jesus is teaching us concerning how we're to pray. And so, let's look at those two elements that I introduced moments ago. First of all, we want to praise God for who He is. Look at the middle of the ninth verse and notice the Lord's Prayer, and all of you, I'm sure, have repeated the Lord's Prayer. It begins with our Father, and I want to key in on that word, our. Now, moments ago, I said, God is not forbidding corporate prayer, and the word our would lend itself to the idea that prayer is to be done publicly. Our Father is expressing that we are a part of a group, that we are connected with other fellow worshipers as we pray, and there is that right place, that proper place for praying together, coming together in prayer 
and petitioning the Lord and praising the Lord. I have learned a lot about prayer by listening to sincere prayer warriors who praise God. And when I hear it, it doesn't point me to the prayer warrior, it points me to God. And I think about who God is by hearing that prayer. Important for us to come together and pray. It also reminds us that we're a part of a group and not the Lone Ranger when it comes to my relationship with God. I'm not here to go it alone. I'm here with other believers, our Father. That's what it's expressing as we think about this text. But then it goes on and it says, our Father. Now, for us, we look at this and we think, well, you know, of course I call God Father. But for the audience that Jesus is speaking to, Father was not the common name that one would address God with throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is sharing with us that we are to identify the Father as one that we have a unique and special relationship with, yes, corporately, but also individually. He is my Father because of Jesus Christ. One commentator said this, and I I think it's important. Only 15 times was God referred to as Father in the Old Testament. Where it does occur, it is used of the nation Israel or the king of Israel. Never was God called the Father of an individual or of human beings in general. In the New Testament, numerous references to God as Father can be found. What happened? What happened is a change. Because of Jesus Christ, we can have a unique relationship with God where He is indeed our Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, but to all who did receive Him, or excuse me, John of Jesus, but all who had, did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? Children of God. So He is our Father, not by virtue of who I am, but by virtue of who I have become in Jesus Christ, by my faith connection with Him. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a term of endearment. It would be the counterpart to our daddy. So there's an intimacy, a closeness that we have with God. And so the Scripture is telling us that we address God in this unique and new way. He is our Father. I want you to look at something else. Our Father in heaven. Now, in heaven communicates the transcendence of God. He is so much more than the man that He created. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. So as I pray, yes, He is my Father, but in order to understand who God is in the fullness of how He's presented in Scripture, He is more than just Father. He is the God of all heaven, the sovereign one. And that leads us to the next statement, hallowed be thy name. What does it mean, hallowed be thy name? 
What it means very simply is this. His name is unique. Now, when the Bible speaks of name, it's talking about more than just what we call somebody. It often expresses the characteristics of a person, the nature of a person. And what the Scripture is saying here, when I pray to God, I'm praying to one who is unique and stands by himself as unique. The word holy means set apart. Often we think of it in terms of only holiness in regard to sin. He's set apart from sin. But really, holiness applies to every attribute of God. There is no one else like Him. He is unique. He stands alone. So when I pray and I petition God, I need to recognize who it is I pray to. He is my Father. He is the God of heaven and the God of earth. He is holy. There's no place for us to address God as the man upstairs, the big guy, any of those things that try to bring God down to a level to where we feel more comfortable with Him are inappropriate. God is wholly approachable, but He is still God, and I need to worship His holiness. This is what the Word of God is reminding us of in this text, the importance of worshiping God in this way. Now, as we move on in the text, we come to the part to where we petition God for our needs. Look at what the Lord's Prayer goes on to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10 shares with us that before I get to my grocery list about my needs, I am to approach God by praying for His kingdom to come. Now, when the Scripture refers to His kingdom coming, what does it mean? Jesus Christ is coming again, and He's going to establish His kingdom on earth. Jesus is king right now, but the experience of the kingdom on earth is yet to come. And so, when we pray, as we're instructed to many times in Scripture, we're saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Establish your kingdom on earth. Now, there are times when, I don't know about you, but man, that motivation to pray for the kingdom to come is greatly increased. Man, we look around at the mess that our world is in, and the prayer that His kingdom would come is a prayer that just as things are done in heaven on earth, as it is in heaven, that that will come to earth and that God will rule this earth in person and straighten out the terrible mess that sin has brought our world to. There's a place for us as believers to pray that. And I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you have prayed that lately? May your kingdom come quickly. And may your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That is an important part of our prayer life. Additionally, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. 
Now, this is the part of the petition where we ask God to supply our needs. And it's expressing to us the importance of praying in such a way that I say to God, these are my needs. The daily bread is something that would have communicated the basic sustenance that a person needs each day to survive. And I appreciate so much the idea of it being daily bread. That indicates that this is to be something that's done daily as we recognize who supplies everything that we have, everything that we need, but also recognizes a dependence on Him for that provision. In our country, it's easy to forget that part of the prayer, isn't it? Isn't it easy to just say, yeah, things will go on pretty much as they have. All of my needs are supplied, of course. I don't need to worry about it. I have a 401k. I have uh, food laid in. I have, you know, this, this, and this. And we forget our dependence on God's daily supply. I've seen believers in Kenya and in India where they don't take that for granted. And they pray for their daily food out of dependence on God. I think it can be expanded beyond just our daily bread to the idea of God supply my needs. Now, when we talk about needs, we are not talking about the things that I want for greedy purposes. God supplies over and above what we need so often out of His grace. But my prayer shouldn't be to accumulate more stuff. Otherwise, I would have that bass boat I've been asking. I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not about that. It's about us petitioning God for the things that we need and thanking Him for what He supplies. This is how we are to petition God in that way. And then, this is the part of the passage that's tough. Right after, give us this day our daily bread, there's this statement, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And by the way, let me just say this is amplified in verses 14 and 15. Because when we look at verses 14 and 15, that idea of forgiveness goes on. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That word for gives us the idea that this is an explanation of something that has been said earlier. And what has been said earlier is forgive us our debts. All of us have a huge sin debt before God. And that sin debt is something that I can't work off on my own. It is something that has to be provided by the grace and the provision of God. And so when I enter into forgiveness from God, it is me asking Him to forgive me. Now, all of us did that who have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ when we were saved. We were saying to God, I am a helpless, hopeless sinner with a huge debt of sin that I can't pay off, would you forgive me? So if that takes place when I am saved, when I trust Christ as my Savior, I experience the forgiveness of God, 
is it appropriate for me to pray consistently and daily that God would forgive my trespasses as I forgive others? And let me explain this to you. Positionally, I experience forgiveness from God. The moment I trust Christ as my Savior, my sins are forgiven past, present, future. That is my position. As far as God judging me, I am no longer condemned. That is taught clearly in Scripture. But there is another aspect, and that is not relationship. We're talking about relationship when it comes to God's forgiveness and right standing with Him, but there is the issue of fellowship. And here's the idea. As a child of God who has experienced the full forgiveness of God judicially, I can still have difficulty in relating to God, even though I am His child, because of lack of forgiveness that takes residence in my heart. Positionally, I'm still saved. I'm His Son. But experientially, I'm not experiencing the closeness with God that I could. I like to explain it this way. I know I've used this illustration before, but I think it communicates the idea. I'm the father of three sons. Relationally, they will always be my three sons. Right? Now, There can be issues that come up to where they pull away, to where they reject, to where they rebel, to where they do things that I know that they shouldn't be doing, and that's going to affect my fellowship with that son until we get it straightened out. But it will never affect my relationship with that son. They're still my son. That's the way it is with us and God. And what it's saying to us, I think, is so important for us to grasp. A lot of us see lack of forgiveness as no big deal. It really doesn't matter. I can carry a grudge. I can refuse to forgive another person, and it really doesn't matter. But it matters, and it matters very much to God. If I want to experience the fullness of my relationship with God and understand more of what happened to me positionally, then I need to make sure that experientially I'm keeping short accounts and not holding on to a grudge and not allowing that to devolve into a hatred for my brother. John wrote this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, a part of loving our brother is forgiveness. Not carrying that grudge, not refusing to be reconciled but looking and loving unconditionally. Jesus is sharing with us a principle that is found many times in Scripture. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the standard. God forgave me unconditionally with all of my brokenness, with all of my offenses, 
God forgave me nonetheless. So I'm not to carry that feeling of resentment and hatred. Colossians 3.13 says this, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Each of those passages is saying very similar things to what Jesus is expressing here in the Lord's Prayer and the passage that follows. So what we need to do as the followers of God is identify those that I have not been reconciled with, that I have not forgiven. And in my heart, I need to forgive them to have that right relationship, excuse me, fellowship with God. I have the relationship when I trust Christ, but the fellowship is hampered by a lack of forgiveness. Finally, look at verse 13. When we come to verse 13, it says this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is something that is a little startling when we look at it on its face. Do not lead us into temptation. Here's the question, does God ever lead us into temptation? And what we find from scriptural authority is absolutely not. In James it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, now what does that next part say? Tempts no one. So when I'm tempted, it's not God bringing me into that situation of temptation to produce sin in me. As a matter of fact, in the 14th verse, James goes on to describe to us what the source of our temptation is. Listen to what James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What is it saying? It's expressing to us that temptation comes from my own sin nature and my own sinful proclivities. That's what leads me into sin. So why does Jesus say in this text, and lead us not into temptation? God is not directly responsible for the temptation that we are led into. I'm led into temptation by my own desires, by my own lusts. And I need to be careful of that. If I walk into a pastry shop and I look at all of those delicious pastries and I'm tempted to eat something that I shouldn't eat, that wasn't God that took me into that pastry shop. It was me, right? I'm the one that moved into that position. If I'm on the internet and Something a little dicey as far as its sexual content pops up on the screen. I shouldn't take the next click to see what that's all about. That's not God leading me into temptation. That's my own flesh looking and responding to a temptation that's there. So when Jesus is saying in this text, lead us not into temptation, what he's saying is this, we're to pray that God keep me as far away from temptation as I possibly can get because I know my weakness. Help me to make the right choices, the right decisions to stay as far away from it as I can and to draw upon your resources so that I can do so. 
That's the idea behind lead me not into temptation. There was a writer of Proverbs other than Solomon, and his name was Agur. And he gave the following proverb in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Free me with the food that is needful for me. Excuse me. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's the idea. Keep me away from these things. You are God. I want to be obedient to you. Help me to avoid those pitfalls that would lead me to sin. By the way, one final thought. When it says deliver us from evil, there are some translations that render this. Deliver me from the evil one. And the idea is... Not only do I have my own flesh to contend with, but I have Satan who would love to tempt me in the direction away from God. So this morning, as we've looked at this text, we've seen the importance, yes, of making sure that I have the right motivation in prayer, that my purpose in praying is about God and not about me. That's essential for us to take away. But we also see a pattern for prayer where we praise God and where we petition Him for the proper things. As you think about the Lord's Prayer, if you want to quote the Lord's Prayer and to repeat the Lord's Prayer, there's nothing wrong with it. But make sure that you're doing so with the proper motivation. It's not a formula that we use to get something that we want from God. It's a praise. And if you mean the words of the Lord's Prayer as you utter them, then pray it. It's perfectly fine to do that. But think about the words. Don't just run through it and utter the Lord's Prayer and say, done. Think about the meaning behind it. And every time you pray, think about what you're praying. You know, when we had our kids and we were teaching them to pray, sometimes right before bed, they would say, Lord, thank you for this food. You know, they were so tired. (laughs) They weren't thinking about what they were praying. They were just going through a prayer that popped into their head. And, you know, I I said, is something hiding under that pillow I don't know about? Because you're supposed to be praying to prepare for bed. You know, I find myself doing that as an adult. I can go into my rote prayer that's so familiar with me that I'm not even thinking about the words. That's what God wants us to avoid. We're doing a holy thing when we pray. We're talking to a holy God. And we need to approach prayer in that knowledge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder to us all that we need to be people of prayer, but praying with the right motivation. Help us to avoid the temptation to try to manipulate you into doing what we want. Help us to avoid just going through the motions of prayer or even worse, praying publicly so that people will look at us and think that we are somehow more spiritual or greater. God, forgive us for the times that we have done that. And Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning who is struggling with forgiveness of somebody else, that this morning they will make a commitment to forgive, but not only forgive, seek reconciliation as a result 
of that break in relationship or fellowship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.